for the last two to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. So uh, a meeting of Eurozone ministers says the Greek will not stay in the EU bailout program or they haven't reached a decision yet. Tesla misses after China sales disappoint and Charles Lee plans to expand the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. How will the outcome of the Eurozone meeting impact markets? This morning on Money for Nothing, we'll ask Michael Kurtz of Nomura Securities. And after that, uh, Asian Bankers Club's Kingston Lai joins us to talk about what's hot in Tokyo's property market. Peter Lewis is back as guest host. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. Welcome back. Thank you, Peter. And uh, Greece is once again the topic of the morning. Will they? Won't they? Will they? Won't they? And uh, the latest news says that uh, we still don't know. And the markets uh, are waiting for the decision. That's going to be the big event of the uh, the next few days. Yes. Now, it's all rather confusing because uh, just a very short while ago, maybe even just up to about half an hour ago, Bloomberg News had reported that Greece will remain in the EU bailout program. Uh, but since then, there have been other reports to suggest otherwise. Can you bring us up to date, Peter? Yes, it looks like the talks have broken down in recriminations. No agreement has been reached. The Greek government is saying it's adamant that there will be no um, extension to the bailout. So as a result, the, uh, the the Eurogroup of finance ministers will continue their discussions on Monday and try and find what they're calling a political solution. And in the meantime, they're trying to draft a statement. It appears that they're on their third attempted draft of that statement. Have we any idea what happened uh you know, sort of what led to this uh, report from Bloomberg that suggested they had actually reached a bailout agreement and, the, and then what changed? Well, the initial reports about an hour or two hours ago was that, um, you know, were quite optimistic that they were going to come to some sort of compromise, but that the, the positions of the two sides really seem to be very intractable. Greece is saying that it absolutely will not um, accept any extension. Um, Germany in particular is saying that for any loans to be made, Greece must be in a bailout program. So something has got to give somewhere. One side has got to give some ground. Yeah, Bill Rhodes is the president and CEO of the William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. And he says that the Greek banks are the Achilles heel. It's really going two ways. On the one hand, uh, Mario Draghi and the ECB say they won't take Greek bonds as collateral for their low cost uh, facilities. On the other hand, they've authorized the Greek central bank to provide 60 billion of short term financing, but at higher rates. So it's an is-you-is-is-you-ain't type situation. Uh, and I think uh, everyone now is seeing what uh, will happen at the Eurozone Finance Minister's meeting. And I'm not looking for some specific agreement, but for progress. And I think one of the indicators there is that uh, I think Christine Lagarde would like to see some sort of an arrangement. And I think she understands that there has to be some relief here. So uh, prior to the meeting in Brussels, thousands of people took part in rallies in Greece in support of the new government's anti-austerity policies. Here's the BBC's Mark Lowen from Athens. 
It is a peaceful pro-government rally to coincide with the meeting of Eurozone finance ministers in Brussels. A huge crowd has turned out here to say that they support their government in the attempts to renegotiate Greece's bailout with the Eurozone and with the IMF to end the painful austerity that has put one in four out of work here and one in three below the poverty line. Now, the Greek finance minister is currently in Brussels. He's meeting his Eurozone uh, counterparts, and he will say that Greece will accept about 70% of the bailout conditions, but it wants an end to the other 30%. It wants an end to austerity. It wants to raise the minimum wage, for example. It wants to provide electricity to 300,000 or so Greeks who have had their power cut off because they can't afford it. It wants to end privatizations, and it wants uh, to exchange Greek debt for bonds that will only be repaid once the Greek economy starts growing. So the U.S. markets were down slightly over the uncertainty over Greece and also the Ukraine. The Dow uh, closed six points down at 17,862 and the S&P 500 uh, closed at 2,068. Uh, the Nasdaq was boosted by a two percent share in two uh, percent in Apple shares uh, after uh, Carl's uh, the active investor uh, Carl Icahn actually released uh, some news on Apple uh, raising his estimated share price. The Nasdaq was up uh, thirteen points to four thousand eight hundred and one. Uh, Peter, do we have current numbers on uh, the local the Asian markets? Yes, it looks like the Nikkei is going to. Open up around three quarters of a percent at 17,935. Um, and Australia is up just slightly to 5,770. Okay, so uh, in terms of oil, with the recent pop in oil prices, analysts were hoping that this was all just one big flash in the pan and maybe oil prices would start to rise again. But UBS Wealth Management CIO Office Executive Director and also Commodities Strategist Wayne Gordon says that this is not the case. Oil is going to be lower for longer. And the global economy should be strengthened by this. Asia is certainly going to be one of the big beneficiaries. So the question then is... Is this a time when we see valuations beginning to look attractive or do we need to wait even more? Here's what Wayne says. Um, Oil companies have re-rated to some degree. However, if you look at the way in which they're starting to continue to pay dividends, um, that just surprises me. Um, I I am very surprised by the fact that they uh, reiterated their guidance to continue to pay dividends. I don't think that this is an enduring feature. I think that if oil prices are definitely lower for longer, um, which is what we're seeing in the production side relative to the demand side, we look at the IEA numbers, they kept demand demand growth fairly constant in their recent report. That surprised me because I thought you'd see a little bit of a pickup in demand given the lower prices. So given the fact that we have stocks building very, very quickly in the US, in fact, we're likely to see stocks by the time we get to the middle of summer at levels, uh, perhaps at record levels we haven't seen since 1998. So clearly oil is going to be lower for longer. That means that a lot of these companies which are giving guidance uh, based around the $80 a barrel mark will have to cut their marginal cost expectations to around $50 a barrel. So uh, that's fairly bad news for people in the oil services area where they're obviously going to have to uh, provide some uh, uh, downward pressure on their prices uh, that they're providing to the the bigger oil companies uh, because CapEx has come off. But it's still a lot of room in the CapEx budget. You look at BP and they have CapEx brought down from $23 billion to $20 billion. 
Well, you, you, would, you would sit there and say, well, okay, they're probably going to have to trim CapEx even more to save more costs, uh, but that is only going to impact in the next two to three right. years. That doesn't have an immediate impact on the bottom line. And in local news, Charles Lee is looking to expand the Hong Kong-Shanghai stock link. The mainland and local bourses are reviewing a proposal to lift the total quota, cut down market holidays, and also add more stocks to be traded under the cross-border trading scheme. Peter, can you bring us up to date? Well, Renita, there's currently 273 Hong Kong stocks that are included on the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. Um, What the exchange is proposing is that more of the almost 1,600 main board stocks are included, and also some of the 205 stocks that are listed on the growth enterprise market. And also they want to include derivatives, which will be a a particularly exciting development because it's very hard for overseas investors to trade derivatives on the China market. So that's futures on stock indices, individual stocks and ETFs. And Tesla Motors, the electric car maker led by Elon Musk, reported a quarterly loss when analysts had predicted a profit. The company uh, made some changes to how it approaches customers in China. The fourth quarter loss, excluding certain items, was 13 cents a share. Analysts had estimated 32 cents a share on average. The company faces some headwinds at home and abroad. In the U.S., the lower gas prices, the lowest gas prices, I should say, in more than five years, have made traditional cars more attractive to U.S. drivers. And in China, sales have slowed amid consumer perception that home charging is difficult. A China executive of Tesla has resigned, the third top China manager to have left the electric car maker since last year. The departure of Jun Jin, a vice president of communications, comes on the heels of a warning by CEO Elon Musk that he's prepared to fire overseas executives who fail to meet sales targets. All right, let's bring in Michael Kurtz of New Mura Securities, who joins us uh, to uh, discuss the markets this morning. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So the Greece bailout uh, or or not, uh, what do you make of this? Will they, won't they? Will they, won't they? Yeah, you know, I wish I could um, take the the conversation a step further, uh, uh, you know, beyond the uncertainty that was reported in your segment a moment ago. But we don't have a a bug on the wall any more than than, uh, the media does. What, what I can say is that uh, certainly uh, if the authorities in Greece are listening to their own people, uh, that there is no desire on the part of the Greek people in a number of different media surveys to leave the euro area. And therefore, that there is an incentive, I think, a, a domestic political incentive for them eventually to come to some sort uh, of an accommodation with the Troika uh, having said that, though, it's also in their interests to get the most accommodative deal that they can, and therefore they do have to sort of deliberately uh, take this right up to the very edge. They need to court with, uh, you know, with disaster so as to maximize the potential uh, outcome for themselves. At the same time, I think the European powers uh, need to be flexible um, because, you know, there is a historical pattern here where uh, allowing some relief to debtors who are under great duress uh, is is standard banking practice internationally. And so eventually, I think we probably will grope our way towards some sort of a compromise. Michael, uh, how do you think that the outcome one way or the other is going to impact Asian markets today? Well, this is the uh, probably the most important issue, which is that um, arguably this is really a much smaller issue for not just Asia, but even for uh, Europe 
and the other global financial markets than was the case when Greece took us all you know, to the brink back in the second quarter of 2012. And I say that for two different reasons. The first is that non-Greek private sector exposure to Greek debt is substantially smaller today. I think in the European banking system overall, there is something like $50 billion worth of exposure, and much of that has been uh, largely provisioned against already, meaning that even if the debt uh, isn't made whole, that it's already been accounted for. And secondly, because the ECB has considerably more firepower today in terms of specific tools at its disposal to be able to uh, calm and to mitigate any uh, external financial sector disorder that might uh, come as a result of a, of a eventual Greek repudiation of debt. So, so, so Michael, it's a smaller problem and there are better tools to deal with it. So Michael, if, if the talks break down between Greece and the EU, it doesn't accept a, a bailout program, the ECB refuses to make it a short-term loan, is there anywhere else that Greece could go to get a loan? I'm thinking maybe China or Russia or somewhere else? have seen China uh, willing in, in certain cases in the past to, to step in as a sort of a lender of last resort, usually uh, under terms that are very favorable to itself. I don't have any uh, specific knowledge that China is offering itself as an alternative in any explicit way at the moment, um, but uh, it would certainly be interesting to see whether or not at some point uh, Greece turns in that direction, and I suspect that China would see not just financial incentives, but more importantly, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic and geostrategic incentives to, to offer itself in that capacity. Okay, Michael, um, moving on from Greece, I mean, uh, Europe is uh, still appears to be the foremost topic uh, today. Uh, what are your thoughts on the meeting in Min- Minsk and uh, whether a peace agreement, uh, you know, signed last year, uh, should this agreement be reached or, or not? And the impact that it's going to have on uh, Ukraine, Russia and further sanctions on Russia? Yeah, I have to say, this is an issue that worries me more than the Greek situation does. Uh, As I mentioned a moment ago, the Greek situation may very well not matter much, even if it does blow up, and there are strong domestic political reasons why it probably shouldn't blow up. Whereas in the Ukraine, I think we're dealing with a lot more pure uncertainty here, and that uncertainty becomes magnified by the great deal of pressure that Vladimir Putin finds himself under domestically in light of the uh, economic uh, downturn that is befalling the Russian economy, particularly as a function of lower oil and gas prices. And therefore, he's a bit of, you know, what we might think of here as a, as a cornered rat. Um, and when a rat is cornered, it's much more difficult to anticipate how, anticipate how they might uh, behave. In that sense, I'm not certain that even, uh, you know, some sort of a new accord in Minsk really means much for markets or means much for any kind of bankable peace uh, in, uh, in that particular part of the world. The bottom line really is that the Ukraine card, I think, is a, is, is a card that Putin may continue to see as an attractive one to play um, as much as anything these days as a means of shoring up his domestic situation, given that his own uh, backers amongst the you know, more wealthy elites in Russia uh, are almost certainly beginning to have second thoughts about whether or not he's taking them in a direction that they want to go. So, Michael, there appears to be three big risks that the markets are focusing on at the moment in the world, Greece, Ukraine and China. Where does China fit in your list of concern- concerns, given that we're seeing, you know, some poor economic data, the economy is slowing down, the inflation numbers don't look particularly good? Is that 
top of your concerns at the moment? We're certainly um, watching China with a few beads of sweat on our forehead. Uh, we don't believe that China is going to suffer uh, a uh, more dramatic slowdown or, or, uh, or you know, what we might call a hard landing this year. China, as always, has ample policy tools at its disposal to uh, backstop growth if it chooses to deploy those tools. And I think that, um, to some degree, we have to understand that, that the Chinese leadership today is not so much suffering an economic slowdown as they are accepting an economic slowdown. Um, and it's a necessary cost of the economic rebalancing that Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang uh, would like uh, to uh, you know, ultimately put China through in order to get to a more uh, sustainable and, and rational pattern of economic activity on the other side of the reform process. If the Chinese leadership themselves get more worried about uh, a more dramatic slowdown in economic activity, they would be able to deploy either fiscal resources or uh, loosen monetary policy more uh, abruptly than what we've seen so far. Um, and in so doing, I think, you know, be able to sustain a sort of an important baseline of economic activity from the standpoint of financial markets. And, and Michael, we're seeing finally a, a big disconnect between the world's central banks and their monetary policy. The Fed is, is uh, on the verge of raising rates, it looks like, um, whereas other central banks around the world, including China, um, are loosening monetary policy. How is that disconnect going to, going to play out in the financial markets? Well, I think one of the absolutely critical areas in which we will see it play out further uh, is in currency movements. And, and here, uh, I, again, don't have... Uh, you know, purely good things to say. I think um, a stronger dollar is going to be a pattern uh, that will continue to assert itself throughout 2015 and perhaps even into 2016. And a strong dollar has very differential, uh, differentiating uh, impacts around the global financial marketplace. For Europe and Japan, for example, dollar strength or a slightly weaker local currency should be good for export performance and good for the reflationary uh, tendencies that their central banks are trying to, uh, you know, sort of usher forward. For much of the emerging market world, on the other hand, we don't talk about beneficial currency movement. We talk about FX volatility, and it becomes more of a risk factor. Uh, and therefore, I think this whole pattern tends to play more into the uh, benefit of, of uh, financial markets in Europe and Japan than uh, for, for many of the emerging markets. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Kurtz. He is the Chief Asia Equity Strategist at Nomura Securities. And uh, speaking of currencies, the euro uh, to the U.S. dollar rate is currently 1.13. Um, the g- g- pound sterling to the U.S. dollar is currently 1.5 and 120 Japanese yen will buy you one U.S. dollar. In oil, the West Texas uh, measure is currently just above $49 and Brent crude oil is just below $56. The Community Care Fund provides a living subsidy for eligible non-public housing, non-CSSA, and low-income households to relieve their financial pressure. Applications will close on August 29. All eligible households, please apply at service units as soon as possible. For details, please visit the fund's website or call 2180-6666.
The time is 8.22 a.m. and Greece certainly is the word this morning. Uh, the time, uh, sorry, the Nikkei is currently at 17,810, up 170 points. And the weaker yen has made the real estate market in Tokyo more attractive for Asian buyers. This morning we have Asia Bankers, uh, Asian Bankers Club's CEO, Kingston Lai, uh, join us to talk about their property tour, especially for Hong Kong buyers. Good morning, Kingston. Hi, good morning. So, Kingston, you have a guided property trip uh, hosted by the Asian Bankers Clubs to Tokyo, specifically to look at Tokyo property. But, I mean, uh, tell us about this. Isn't Tokyo property really expensive, in a bubble? Um, why are you going there? Uh, not, not at all. I mean, it's not definitely not a bubble. I mean, what happened in, in, in the last 20 years, if you see, Japan has been, you know, in depression. Prices have never moved up, you know. And uh, now you have a lot of exciting news about Japan. You have the, uh, of course, Abenomics. You have Olympics coming up in, in 2020. Uh, you have uh, potentially casinos in Japan. And, and yen is low, as you just mentioned. It's, it's today at 120, right? If you look at it, it's been uh, about, what, 50% below um, since two years ago. So that's, that makes Japan Japanese property really attractive. So a bit about the tour, you know, uh, we, we feel that uh, while a lot, talking to a lot of investors here, they find that it's, it's pretty difficult to navigate the Japanese uh, real estate market. I think that has a lot to do with uh, language barrier and cultural barrier. So I think such tours, bringing them to, to actually see it themselves, it, it will actually help. So is this the first time you've actually done a tour to Tokyo? I mean, I, I know that the focus uh, on real estate has been in other parts of the Asian region, you know, where there are uh, deals, economic deals. Uh, but so Tokyo, is this a new one? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a new one for us. We've done various trips, you know, other other markets like Bangkok, KL, and stuff. But Tokyo, it's uh, it's pretty recent. I I guess this is really uh, because of the success that we had a few weeks ago, uh, doing a a seminar and exhibition in Hong Kong. It, it drew almost five hundred people coming uh, for a weekend exhibition, uh, and to find out about Tokyo. And and from there, we we felt that you know a trip is quite necessary. So, so, King- yep. so Kingston, how does the Tokyo um, residential market uh, compare to, say, Hong Kong in, in terms of pricing, in terms of quality of the, of the properties that you can find there? Is this attractive for, for people here in Hong Kong? I mean, uh, just to give you some example, I mean, if you choose, uh, you know, as they say, a property in the mid-level, uh, you're talking about, what, easily 20000 Hong Kong dollar per square foot. For similar property in, 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 in Tokyo, you know, pretty high end, I would say you get it for half price. You know, let's say ten thousand Hong Kong dollar per square foot, so um, that makes it really attractive. So, uh, yeah. so that's the purchase price. Now, it's still quite expensive, actually, to rent an apartment in Tokyo. So, tell us the situation of the buy-to-let market, and you know whether the rent is still surging. Yeah, the rent, the rent is is surging definitely, and I think what happened really in the last, uh, let's say, ten years is uh, a lot of Japanese are actually not buying properties; they they're actually renting properties. Uh, so, like in Tokyo, for example, you have only 40% of the Japanese actually own a property. So, 60% of them are renting. That's why that's pushing up the rental. Uh, but we believe that the, the rental rate is going to continue to grow as, as you see more activities in this area. You see more investors coming in. You see even the local Japanese start to believe that, that property prices w- will go up because they've never experienced that in the last 20 years. So, finally, in the last two years, things are changing.
So uh, when you compare Tokyo to sort of other, um, let's say, expensive property markets in the world, London, New York, Paris, Sydney, all cities that, uh, you know, Hong Kong buyers are interested in, how does it compare? Why is it a good choice? Um, a couple of reasons. I think the, the number one is the currency, right? With a really, really low yen, you know, that's that's making it very, very attractive. And uh, you know, uh, and of course, Tokyo. It's it's one of the key markets, just like New York, like London. You know, uh, ability to actually get financing for the property that makes it attractive for for foreigners. So we are getting 60-70% financing, uh, just what you could get in, in London as well. So that's attractive, you know. And I think the whole, the whole Japanese economy with Abenomics, with, with Shinzo Abe be re-elected, uh, you know, uh, a few months ago. So that's all really positive for, for the market. And, and Tokyo is sort of losing out as a, as a financial center these days to places like Hong Kong and Singapore. Is it still attractive to bankers and people in the financial sector to, to live there? Uh, I think for the bankers, yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it will continue to be a very important, you know, Tokyo has always been, you know, a, a unique place for, for, for financial center. You know, he has his own market there. But what is really attractive is very recently, uh, you have also the Tokyo governor promoting Tokyo as a Asian headquarters hub. So they have these huge um, incentives to attract Asian companies to actually set up headquarters there, and uh, no lots of tax incentives, subsidies. So that's another game plan for for for, for Japan. You know, that's that's really exciting, exciting for for Tokyo. Peter, what do you think? Would you would you have ever thought that uh, you know the Tokyo property market would be an investment area? Well, I, I lived in Tokyo um, around about twenty years ago. It was very expensive even in those days. I mean, you know, it's it's been an extraordinarily good investment if you if you bought property there a long time ago, and it is a very attractive city to to live in. It's uh, it's quite an exciting place, and Japan is a beautiful country. So I can see the attraction for for people going to Tokyo. All right, all right, Kingston. Thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning. That is Kingston Lai and he is the CEO of the Asia Bankers Club. Let's take a quick uh, look at the numbers. The Nikkei is currently uh, up 243 points to 17,896. Hong Kong's, uh, excuse me, uh, Korea's uh, Kospi is down seven points to 1,938. All right, so here we are. It's uh, the end of a uh, Thursday. I'm I'm still thinking Wednesday, Peter. it's still definitely out of it. Okay. End of a Thursday. We've got sort of a lot on the cards uh, today as we still await the outcome of various meetings in Europe. What else should we be keeping our eye on today and later through the week? Well, this is a crucial time for the Eurozone because it's got turmoil within its borders in the ter- in, in the face of Greece trying to negotiate to stay in the EU uh, or in the Eurozone. And it's also got turmoil outside its borders with fighting in Ukraine. I would also focus on China and um, the economic data that's coming out of China is absolutely crucial. Um, that will dictate whether we see further um, declines in oil and other commodity prices globally. Um, are you expecting that to impact markets one way or the other? The, yes. The data coming out of China? I, I think so. I think, you know, um, China these days is a, is a key component of, uh, of global growth. And also it is one of the countries that's exporting its deflation around the world because of the overinvestment in things like iron ore and steel production. Um, those commodities are having to be dumped onto the world market and are forcing down uh, commodity prices. And that is sending a deflationary pulse um, around the world. 
All right, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. He is our regular Thursday co-host for Money for Nothing and a very active on our Facebook page. So certainly if you would like to put questions to him, uh, do post a comment on our Facebook page, which is money... Um, Facebook.com forward slash Money for Nothing at RTHK Radio 3. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora wrapping up for this morning. The weather forecast for today will be fine but hazy. Cool in the morning, mild and dry during the day. Currently, the temperature is 15 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 62%. And now it's time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. A group of prisoners at a jail in southern Taiwan have committed suicide after taking staff hostage and demanding their release. Our Taiwan correspondent Cindy Sui has details. Around 5 a.m., the six prisoners who had held a warden and a chief guard hostage committed suicide inside a prison by shooting themselves. The uh, negotiators, they tried their very best to talk these six prisoners out of doing that, but they saw no point in living anymore and they killed themselves after releasing the chief guard around 3.20 a.m. This whole incident lasted about 14 hours, and during that time, the prisoners had talked to not only the officials, but their own family members were brought in to talk to them, and they also were given food and betel nut and beverages, but in the end, they decided that they saw no point in living. Francesco Scatino, the captain of the cruise ship Costa Concordia, which ran aground off the Italian coast three years ago, has been found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 16 years in prison. 32 passengers and crew died when the ship hit rocks off the Italian island of Giglio. The BBC's Alan Johnston reports from outside the court. Francesco Scatino attempted to take his huge ship very, very close to the island of Giglio. He was on the bridge and in command when she rammed a reef and sank on that winter.